Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you'll open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. And the title of this sermon is The Great and Terrible Day of the Lord. Well, what happens after you die? And what will the end of the world look like? These are two questions that have fascinated humans really since the beginning of time. Where do our loved ones go when they die? Will we see them? What should we do to prepare for the end of the world? Is the crazy guy in the the city with the sign right? Is the end near? Well, minus the crazy guy with the end is near sign, these were exactly the questions that the Thessalonians had for their mentors in the faith. In last week's text, we saw Paul answering the first question. What about our loved ones who have fallen asleep? Will they miss out on the glorious second coming of Jesus? Had the Thessalonians themselves missed it somehow? Paul answered those questions with encouragement in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4. But today, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11... He shifts to a new set of questions. When is Jesus coming back? Exactly. What date and time? And what should we do to prepare? Let's dive into the text. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate, breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Isn't it encouraging to see people in the Bible who have the same questions or even some of the same anxieties that you do? It's a reminder of our humanness and that this book is real life. We've all watched those movies or 
We even read those books where there's a certain character who just doesn't ring true to us. You think, that's not real life. That character is not relatable. But not in the Bible. The Bible is full of characters that are exactly like us. Because they're human. With human emotions, flaws, and even questions. Look at verse 1. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. I love this. Paul obviously taught them that Jesus had come to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in their place, and was buried and rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that he would come back for his bride, the church. One of their first questions was, when? What date and time? We'd like to put it on our calendars. Set our clocks. Doesn't that ring true? Such a natural question. Jesus' disciples themselves wanted to know the same thing. Mark chapter 13, verse 4. The disciples say, tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? This is the question that the Thessalonians were asking Paul. It's the question that many of us would like to know today, if we're honest. Well, what was Jesus' response? Look at what he says in Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour... No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, speaking of himself, but the Father only. I'm going to read that again. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I love the people today who know more than angels in Jesus himself. They've got it figured out to the day. But Jesus says only the Father knows. Here's the deal, and this is key. If it were good for us as Christians to know the day and hour of Jesus' return, God would let us know. He's given us, according to 2 Peter 1.3, everything needed for life and godliness. And guess what? The exact date of Christ's return isn't one of those things needed for life and godliness. So Paul's initial answer to the Thessalonians is, I've got no new information. No speculation of when it might be. In fact, instead of focusing on what we don't know, he focuses on what we do know. No speculation, just scripture. When it comes to eschatology, or, or really anything for that matter, this should be our motto. No speculation, just scripture. Look at verse 2 in our text. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul 
sticks to the words of Jesus himself there. I want to come back to this thief imagery in a moment. But first, I need to call our attention to this vital, crucial phrase in our text. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Full transparency. Whole sermons can and have been preached on this amazing phrase alone. The day of the Lord. It's a rich phrase full of meaning, particularly in the Old Testament. And while I'm not going to go full throttle here, I do want us to get a basic understanding of what this word means. The term, the day of the Lord, is an expression throughout the Old Testament that refers to two things. It refers first to God's judgment or the defeat of his enemies. And second, the salvation of his people. Many biblical theologians point to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, as the first day of the Lord in Scripture, even though the term isn't used there. God comes into the garden in both judgment and salvation. The day of the Lord. But this term, day of the Lord, is used repetitively in the prophets. Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Malachi, and Joel. Over and over and over and over again. Now, I'd like for us to take a look at Isaiah and then zoom in specifically on Joel and how he uses the term. Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13. Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13. It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Do you see that? Our God, the God of the Bible, is a patient God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Praise God that he's patient with us. He would have been completely just in striking us dead for any and all sin and rebellion against him. But he's patient with us. That being said, his patience won't last forever. There will be a day when his just wrath gets poured out in judgment upon evil. The day of the Lord, for those who are God's enemies isn't going to be a pleasant experience. It's going to be a day of God's judgment. 
9. Specifically, there in Isaiah 13, the text that we just read, the day of the Lord concerns Babylon and God's judgment against them as his enemies. But many of the events there are meant to foreshadow the ultimate day of the Lord at the end of time. Let's take a quick tour through Joel and see how he's using this term. By the way, this day of the Lord that's described here in Joel is directed not at Babylon, but at Israel, who had abandoned God themselves. Joel chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. He writes, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? So priests don't get special treatment. Because they've rejected God, the day will come with destruction, Joel says. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And pay close attention to some of the visible and audible descriptions here. See if they sound familiar to 1 Thessalonians from last week. Joel 2, verses 1 through 3. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, and a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them like a, uh, a flame burns. The land is like a garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Trumpets and clouds, no escape. Yet, in Joel, there's still a call to repentance and a ray of hope. A couple verses later in Joel chapter 2, we read this. Joel 2, verses 12 through 14. Yet even now, yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So like a great prophet, Joel's calling them to repent while there's still time, to turn to a gracious and merciful God. Here's what I want you to see. In the day of the Lord, there's two elements present. Number one, 
the real threat of judgment and destruction to the real hope of salvation upon repentance. Look what gets picked up in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Acts 2, 14 through 21. Peter is preaching this sermon. And it says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel. And he says this, And in the last days it shall be, declares God, or God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall, shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall, what? Be saved. For those who repent and call on the name of the Lord, this will be a day of joy and of salvation. For those who don't, it'll be a dreadful day of destruction. We see both sides of that in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. When Paul writes this, he says, They will suffer the, the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Both sides of it. Destruction on his enemies and salvation for his people. And while we're here in 2 Thessalonians, I want to point out one other quick truth. This phrase, the, the coming of our Lord, and then the phrase, the day of the Lord, seem to be two separate things, yet simultaneous, or, or two sides of the same coin. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-2. He says, now concerning the coming of the Lord, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Jesus' coming, the parousia as it's called, is what was described in our text last week. When the dead in Christ will rise, alive believers will join them with Christ in the clouds. Then, as we learned in our text, we'll usher Jesus back as conquering king for the day of the Lord, a day of judgment and destruction. Two events, but connected together. Okay, with all of that in mind, back to our text in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 2, 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You see what he's saying? Christians, you've been taught that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. What does that mean? Well, first of all, how many thieves call you up and schedule with you the exact moment that they're going to come so that you can put it on your calendar? None. I'm not a good thief anyway. No. They don't give you warning. Second, second, when thieves come, are they usually coming to bless you? No. They're not there for blessing. This is Jesus's and Paul's point. When the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be unexpected, alarming, and destructive. So the, the Thessalonians were asking the when question. But Paul answers with a what. He describes what it's going to be like. A thief in the night. Now, in verse 3... There's an important shift that takes place. Do you see it? Look at the nouns and the pronouns in verse 3. He says, while people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Paul shifted from speaking to brothers and you in verses 1 and 2 to speaking about people, them, and they in verse 3. Important distinction. He's shifted from reminding believers about what they know about the day of the Lord to what the reality is going to be like for unbelievers. See, the unbelieving world will be saying there is peace and security. For whatever reason, whether it's economic safety or military safety or even political safety, they're convinced that they've got nothing to worry about. They're lulled to sleep and confident in their destiny. Maybe you feel that way today. Maybe... You're not a follower of Jesus, and and in your mind, life's pretty good. You've got everything that you could want or even need. You've got the physical protection of the United States, the greatest military on earth. You've got a great job, a great house. You live in Santa Cruz County. In my opinion, one of the greatest places to live on the planet. Life is good. Peace and safety. As clearly and compassionately as I can say it, none of those things will protect you or save you from the coming day of the Lord. I implore you to take seriously what Paul writes here. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape Just as a thief comes unexpectedly, labor pains on a pregnant woman come assuredly. 
You can't escape them. And they're painful. That's Paul's point. For those who haven't repented of sin and believed in Christ for salvation, the day of the Lord can't be escaped from. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, we read this. Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? On that day, it doesn't matter who you are, the lowest in society, a slave, or the highest in society, the kings of the earth, they'll be begging for rocks to fall on them and kill them instead of enduring the wrath of God. There will be no escape on that day. Now, in the case of a thief and of labor for the pregnant woman, you can prepare. For a thief, you can lock and alarm your house. For the pregnant woman, you can have your bags packed and your car gassed up. You can prepare. And that leads us to Paul's next statements. How can we prepare for the day of the Lord? Look at verse 4. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Look at the pronouns in this whole next section. He's back talking to Christians. To you, us, and we. The Thessalonians started with a when question. Paul moved them to a what question. And now, how? This is how Christians should prepare for that day. First, Christians, unlike unbelievers, Paul says, won't be surprised because they're not in darkness. What does Paul mean here by darkness? He means spiritual ignorance. Look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 18. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. This is how Paul regularly uses the concept of darkness. Spiritual ignorance. Uh, oblivious to what's going on around them in the spiritual realm. So, in our text, Paul's saying to Christians, that's not you. You're not going to be surprised because you're not spiritually ignorant. Now, in one sense, we will be surprised because, as we said earlier, we don't know the day or the hour. But, in another sense, we won't be surprised at all because we know that Jesus is coming back. We anticipate it. We actually look forward to it. 
And look what Paul writes next. Verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Remember the pattern that we've seen multiple times in this book. The indicative precedes the imperative. A statement of fact comes before a command. Same here. Look where Paul begins. He begins by reminding them of the truth of who they are. You, Christians, you're not going to be surprised because you're not spiritually ignorant. You're children of light. Here's what you are. Children of light, children of the day. In 1 John 1, we know that Christians walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. But it's even more than that. One commentator notes this. He says, In ancient times, people were called children of something or someone when they shared its characteristics. Christians are children of light, not only because they are in the light, but also because they, they have actually come to be like the light. We are called children of light, not of darkness. But before we become prideful and think that we're somehow just smarter than the spiritually ignorant, I want to remind us of where this light comes from. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The fact that we're children of life is a work of God in our hearts. Without him opening our eyes, every single one of us would be spiritually blind. By God's grace, you, Christians, are children of light. Now, if that's true, and it is, what's then the command he gives us? Verses 6 and 7. So then, so in light of who you are, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So is, is Paul calling us to be insomniacs here and never sleep? I don't think so. He's calling us as children of light to be awake, aware, watchful, self-controlled. He's calling us to live in light of who we are. Picture a soldier who's been tasked with being a watchman. What's the worst thing that you could do as a soldier who's a watchman? Not be ready. Be drunk and passed out asleep. That's Paul's point. As Christians, if we live our life like, like the world, asleep to spiritual realities, we're not fulfilling our calling. If we're living lives with no self-control, intoxicated on power, money, anything for that matter, we're not awake and sober in our focus. But how do we do this? How do we remain awake and sober? Well, Paul's never one for vagueness. Look at verse 8. 
He spells it out specifically. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. How? Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. How do you prepare for the day of the Lord? Not by knowing dates and times, but by putting on faith, love, and hope. This is the spiritual armor that we're to wear as Christians while we wait. This is what protects us. Faith and love to guard our hearts as a breastplate, and the hope or assurance of salvation to guard our minds as a helmet. Very quickly, faith, in its most basic essence, is a life of trusting God. Proverbs 3, 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. When things go wrong in this world, and they will, walking in faith means trusting God, even when we don't understand. That's glorious armor to have on as we wait. Then, love. It's the greatest commandment. First, we're to love God. Then, others. Our spouses, our families, our churches, our neighbors, and even our enemies. So waiting on the Lord isn't just a passive thing where we sit around, twiddle our thumbs, and look at the sky. No. We're called to be an army of love while we wait. Third, hope. Specifically, the hope of salvation. Remember, Christian hope is settled assurance. Why do Christians have the hope of salvation as a helmet? Look at verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Do you realize what a sweet balm this would be to a group of Christians who are concerned about the coming day of the Lord? He's saying, Christians, you have nothing to fear on that day. Nothing at all. Why? Because you're not destined for wrath. But you are destined for what? To obtain salvation. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Let's spell this out even clearer. Every single one of us, every single one of us, deserves God's wrath on that day because of our thoughts, our actions, what we've done and what we've left undone. And God's wrath isn't like human wrath. Human wrath is often out of control, uncalculated, sometimes unjust. God's wrath is 100% measured and just. God's wrath upon sinful humanity is 100% deserved. Our sin against God's law and against himself must be punished, or God wouldn't be a just judge. Yet, Paul tells us as clear as day that as Christians, we're not destined for God's wrath. 
Because Jesus died in our place, absorbing the full amount of God's wrath for us. Understand this. On that day, either Jesus absorbed your wrath or absorbed God's wrath, or you will. No one is righteous. Not one. The only way to escape God's just wrath is to be perfect. And no one but Jesus is. Christians have assurance of salvation. Not because they're perfect, but because Jesus was. We don't fear God's wrath because Jesus took it as our substitute. And because of this truth, Paul tells us that whether we're alive at the day of the Lord or already dead, awake or asleep, we'll live with Christ. Look again at verse 10. He says, we'll live with Christ. He's the prize. It's not just that that Jesus is the get-out-of-jail-free card. He's park place and boardwalk. He's he's the goal and the treasure of our entire existence. We'll live with him forever. Do you see how, if you're assured in that truth, that it's a protection against anything that the world or Satan himself might throw at you? Faith, love, and hope protect us from the deadly arrows of spiritual warfare. The solution isn't knowing dates and times. It's knowing the gospel. It's knowing Jesus. In conclusion, look at what Paul says that we should do with all of this truth. Verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Same as last week, there it is again encouraging eschatology. As we look toward Jesus' coming and the day of the Lord, we're meant to live lives of holiness in the light. We're meant to cling to the truth of God's word and the assurance of our salvation. We're meant to encourage one another and to build one another up. Santa Cruz Baptist Church, I want you to see this clearly. This isn't a command for the professionals. It's a call for all believers. As you eagerly wait for the second coming, encourage one another. Build one another up. And we do this in at least two ways. Number one, verbally. Verbally. You remind each other of the gospel and of your hope of salvation. Why you have that hope. You remind each other that we're not destined for wrath. Praise God for that. You remind each other of God's promises. You encourage one another verbally. Second, you live it out. Do you know how encouraging it is to watch someone live, not for this world, but in light of Christ's return? When you see someone with their eyes firmly fixed on Christ and on his glory and his promises, it's inspiring. You want to be like them. It spurs you on. It's encouraging. 
Jim Elliott once said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The way Jim Elliott lived and the way that he died was and is an encouragement to Christians all over the globe. He lived a life that was locked in on the return of Christ. So Christians, encourage and build one another up, both verbally and through living in light of Christ's return. Finally, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I beg you, please don't leave this place without considering the weight of what I'm saying. There will be a day when Jesus returns. On that day, the full and just wrath of God will be poured out against God's enemies. Just like in the prophets, today there's still time to repent to turn to God, to turn away from sin. God is a merciful and gracious God when you turn to him. Turn today while you still can. And if that's you, or you'd like to talk more about that in person, I'd be elated to. After the the service, I'm going to be standing out here at the table. I would love to have that conversation with you. Christians, Here's my exhortation to you from this text this morning. Christians, don't waste your time trying to predict. Instead, persevere. Pursue godliness. And praise God for who he is and what he's done in the gospel. In light of that, let's pray.